Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, thank you for joining us today for Mortification of Spin. This is Todd Pruitt, and I'm joined, as always, by Amy Bird and Carl Truman. And today we are pleased to have a special guest that we have been looking forward to talking to for some time. His name is Ismael Hernandez. Ismael is the president and founder of the Freedom and Virtue Institute, which is based out of Florida. He's also uh, head of a, of a ministry that does some excellent work that we'll hear about in a little bit. The thing that uh, really got us thinking and excited about having uh, Mr. Hernandez on the program was his excellent book, entitled Not Tragically Colored. The subtitle of the book is Freedom, Personhood, and the Renewal of Black America. It is an outstanding book. It's one of the most important books I've read in several years. It made my top 10 list for books of of the previous year, and we are so delighted to have him on as a guest. Ismail, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a it's a real blessing for me to be with you in this program. Thank you for having me. Yes, I wonder if you would take just a moment to let our listeners know just a little bit about your background, because part of what is so compelling about the book is the opening chapter where you explain kind of where you're coming from and your background, which is a fascinating and and pretty unique story. So, if you wouldn't mind, just tell everybody where you were raised and what you were raised to believe, and how that changed. Yes, I, I grew up in Puerto Rico in the 1960s uh, into a communist household. My father was a founding member of the Puerto Rican Communist Party. He was there in 1959 with 15 men when they started the, the Socialist Party of Puerto Rico. And he was a convicted Marxist uh, who taught us that America was the enemy of the human race. And it was my duty as a good person to destroy this country, and I believe him. The many memories come to me of those days of my father harangues against Yankee imperialism, forcing us to listen to the never-ending speeches of Fidel Castro mm. in seven hours talking. <laughs> wow. And uh, basically telling my mother that he will give the lives of of the four children and home for revolution. And she will cry, we will come and console her. But deep inside of me, you know, I wanted that kind of, of commitment to a cause. Mm. My mother at, this, at the same time, she was a humble Puerto Rican woman of the 1960s. She used to say, where well, we are, whatever he says we are. He says we're communist, okay. <laughs> she didn't care about that. Yeah. Uh, she cared about feeding us, and she couldn't because my father couldn't hold a job because the FBI was always after my father. <laughs> and I hated them. I hated these men who were always in front of our home inside the car checking on my father. I blame America for the poverty around us and for everything that was wrong. But my mother would sneak us to go to mass with friends without my father knowing about it. He would not have allowed it. You know, Yankee imperialism and, and religion are the same thing. Religion is the opium of the people that keeps you thinking on heaven while the capitalists are having a good time here on earth. Mm, yeah. 
That's what he used to say too. So mm. eventually, I wanted to merge that double consciousness of faith and religion and, and, and communism. So what a good Catholic communist boy to do? Well, I joined the Jesuit order, of course. <laughs> yeah. I joined the Jesuits because they were all Marxists. Right. Yeah, this is mid-1980s. Liberation theology was brewing. Revolution mm -hmm. was brewing in Central America, and they were going to send me to Nicaragua to study philosophy, to Sandinista, Nicaragua, the heart of the revolution. So yeah. I was looking forward to that. So it would never happen because seven Jesuits were murdered in El Salvador in 1987. Mm -hmm. I was going to go and live there with them where they were massacred and they did not send us to Nicaragua and I frustrated left seminary. I did not want to be a priest. I wanted to be a revolutionary priest in Nicaragua fighting America. When that did not happen, I went back to Puerto Rico and I eventually I decided to come to America. To, I came to the guts of the monster as we used to call this country. <laughs> And mm. I landed at the University of Southern Mississippi, of all places. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, this black Puerto Rican communist boy who hates America lands in Dixie. <laughs> <laughs> but I always say that, you know, my lungs were filled with the bread of freedom when I landed in, the, in Southern Mississippi. Because mm. for the first time, I began an experience that challenged the safe assumptions of my ideology. And that's how I came to America, and through a long process, I eventually rejected the lies of, of Marxism. Mm. You know, it's fascinating. As I read the book, one of the things that occurred to me is that even though you are a Roman Catholic and the three of us at yes. Mortification of Spin were conservative Presbyterians, yes. one of the things that's very clear is that a central theme, a connecting idea throughout the book is this biblical understanding of mankind as men and women in the image of God who therefore have inherent dignity, but also have individual moral responsibility. We're, we're moral agents able to make free choices and are, and are responsible for those choices. And one of the things I have to ask you about, uh, you mentioned as we were talking a little bit earlier that you've been actually speaking a lot to Presbyterians and other evangelicals who've been reaching out to you, um, having read this book. That's interesting to me. Can you say anything about that? Yes, I think that this idea of human dignity is alive and well in, among our brethren, evangelicals mm -hmm. and Protestants. And also the idea of the individual. You know, I think that that is respected right. in your tradition. When I came right. to America, that's one of the first things that I, I learned. Because as a Marxist, you know, I was a faithful drop in the wave of revolution. My, my mm -hmm. dignity lied in being a faithful drop in that great wave. Apart from that wave, my life had no meaning. I was just a curious accumulation of atoms destined to nothing. Mm -hmm. But in America, I began to discover that I was a unique, unrepeatable person made in the very likeness and image of God. Mm -hmm. you know, with that moral capacity for self-realization that comes from that capacity to reason so we can know the truth and volition so that we can do the good. And there lies our mm -hmm. dignity in that moral capacity. And we, we mirror our Creator. And I think that yeah. in the Presbyterian tradition, there's a great respect for the sovereignty of God. And mm -hmm. uh, we have been made in the image of that God that is sovereign and is reason itself, if he is the word, you know. So I think that that attracts very much 
the Presbyterian tradition to the concepts yeah. in my book. It's interesting. You use the term racialism in the book and demonstrate how this contemporary racialism or, or race consciousness really undermines the dignity of human beings and the moral responsibility of human beings. I wonder if you could unpack that for just a Absolutely. moment. Absolutely. Many, many times in America, we are told that racism is the problem. You know, if we in the black community, and I myself an African Caribbean, our problem is you white people. You know, you fix yourselves, we'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> when you think about that, we are, we are mm-hmm. transferring responsibility and dignity to you because it is your activity, yeah. the one that will make us whole. So we're passive and we have to wait for your activity, your action. So, no, uh, we have made I erase the core, the heart of human identity. And that's the thing. That, that's wrong. Racialism is the inordinate attention to the secondary element of race. We have made it primary. We have made it, as I said, the heart of human identity. And when that becomes the heart of human identity, then our dignity as persons has to set to the side, no? We have to put to the right. background. It becomes thinner in the drama of race antagonisms. And that's what we are suffering in America today, is that inordinate attention to the concept of race, which is itself a human construct. It's not really even a biological Mm -hmm. reality. It's a human construct. But human dignity and the image of God in us is built in our nature. So it has to be primary. How do you see this connecting to the culture of victimhood that we seem to be living in at the moment, uh, Ismail? Well, if you don't have the moral capacity of self-realization, by definition, you become a victim of forces outside of your control. If you don't have control because you don't have responsibility, then responsibility lies outside of you. So external reasons for your condition are seen as the primary reason why you are where you are. So if the internal strength that comes, that is within you, becomes secondary or unimportant. And you begin to create excuses. You know, if you, if you see that your life is someone else's fault, you have two alternatives. Feel sorry for yourself. And you lay down on the side of the road while all kinds of opportunities pass in front of you and you don't even recognize them as opportunities. Or you get angry at the world. And then you pump your fists and others and you reclaim your rights. My problem with that is that even if that is true, that there are obstacles in our lives, and human life is obstacle after obstacle. That's not nothing <laughs> exclusive to any race. Mm-hmm. If you don't recognize that the primary reason for your condition is yourself, and you are also the primary, with God's grace and God's help, the primary resource to change your condition, you necessarily transfer dignity to someone else or to something else. Mm-hmm. And that will never help us find answers to the problems of race. And I'm worried for the church. I'm worried that Mm -hmm. we are being influenced by false ideologies about race that are penetrating 
Presbyterian, Catholic, Evangelical, yeah. churches all over, all over the nation. Yeah. You know, it's one of the things that concerns me is that in my own denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, yes. we're trying to have some conversations about race. Some of those conversations have been helpful. Others have been very unhelpful precisely for the reasons you outline yes. in this conversation and in your book that there are categories um, in terms of victimology, racialism that are being accepted by some in my denomination just uncritically. Yeah. Uh, kind of a, a, a social Marxism that you write about so effectively mm-hmm. is being accepted un, uncritically and that to even challenge some of those categories like collectivism and structuralism, which yeah. which again you address very effectively in your book, to even challenge the idea behind some of that structuralism is to find yourself accused of all kinds of terrible things. I believe that the civil rights movement suffered a transformation mm. uh, at the end of the civil rights movement that was negative. The civil rights right. movement started as an effort of people of faith, mostly yes. pastors, telling mm-hmm. America, you know, be true to what you say on paper. They were affirming the natural rights that were built in our constitution. They recognized the hand of God that was speaking to the nation in spite of the realities on the ground. There were certain natural principles of natural law of faith built in the words of the constitution. And the civil rights movement was saying, we believe in those truths, but we are not seeing them enacted and lived and we are calling the nation to go back to our founding principles. But something happened in the second part of the civil rights movement where we began to challenge the very nature of those rights. We began to challenge the foundational principles of natural law and Christian philosophy that gave birth to the nation, saying that, no, the problem is powers out there. Power is what is going to change this. And we need to control power to basically do to them what they did to us. You know? Right. Uh, instead of doing to others as you want them to do unto you, is like, you know, I'll do it to you first before <laughs> you do it to me. <laughs> right, right. And that's basically what, we, what happened. We embrace Marxist assumptions about human anthropology, the nature, mm. the human person. And Marxist assumptions about the nature of society. And, yeah. and that changed. And, and we are today suffering from that change through this Black Lives Matter movement and these ideas of white supremacy and white, white control of society that are incorrect understandings of America. Yeah, throughout the book, you're really kind of upholding virtue in contrast to victimhood. So yes. how would you suggest that we get back to promoting this, like this moral responsibility and capacity for achievement and inherent dignity? How do we get back to promoting all these things? And especially as and if you could unpack a little bit, you talk about the connection too with uh, racialism and, and poverty and, and how would you define poverty? Yes. I define poverty as an inordinate attachment to a desire for success without, without engagement. Mm. But the problem we have in America is that, that we are not active in the lives of people. I had this experience 
experience that, that helped me understand America. I came to America hating this country, and it was the lived experience of freedom, the one that, mm. that changed my attitude about this country. It was not reading a book. And sometimes we have intellectualized so much the, mm. the problems of poverty and race. And then we read this, write these books. I love to write books. I wrote one, you know. <laughs> but sometimes we, re- we write these books. We put those books on the, in the shelf, and those ideas die right there in your shelf. You know? Yeah. So we had, to, yes, we had to, we had to think correctly about the problems of poverty and race. But we also had to help people experience Christ, experience. Re- a real encounter with Christ and a real encounter with ideas that work in their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. For example, I just came from, from Texas and where I was training in some Presbyterian church with my good friend Marvin Olaski. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were doing a training on effective compassion and how to help people in poverty recognize their dignity and find ways out of the cycles of dependency and victimization. And when race is mixed with poverty, that becomes an explosive evil uh, combination. And only by creating simple, practical, meaningful, and replicable projects that show people that both faith and freedom help and are effective in meeting their needs, they will then have a taste for freedom. And from that comes wonderful things. We have some projects, I don't know if I have the opportunity to talk about. Yeah, yeah please do. That we have, for example, a, a club we call the Self-Reliance Club. And we are now in several dozens of schools and we will probably will be in five different states very soon, where we go mostly to minority poor churches uh, and schools and we open the club, the the kids join the club and they work all year long in entrepreneurial initiatives. And then by the end of the school year, they have earned enough money that they can buy their own school supplies, their uniforms. Instead of getting the handouts from some church, yeah. Yeah. they work throughout the year, they earn money, they learn economics, they are mentored by Christian uh, people. And at the end of the year, we take them to a bank, they open their own savings account, and with the money they earn, they meet their needs. So they mm-hmm. have this connection between reward and accomplishment. Yeah. And when people see that connection, race becomes inconsequential. They mm-hmm. realize, you know, I, I have what it takes to change my life by the choices I make. So race becomes, again, what, what it should be. Scenery in the drama of life's living the right way yeah that's so fascinating and and encouraging you know one of the things as that stuck out to me and you just said is how race becomes inconsequential in that it's interesting as you look across kind of socioeconomic categories in america as well as some of the social pathologies we see is that there's a real correspondence between some of the very same social pathologies among african-americans in the inner city and whites in rural Mm -hmm. parts of America. It's like mirror images of the same thing, the very same pathologies of addiction and children out of wedlock are happening among rural whites as are happening in certain pockets of of the African-American community in urban areas. But in both cases, the causes are very, very similar. This loss of of dignity, 
a loss of a sense of moral responsibility and dependence upon upon government systems rather than mm-hmm. that sense of dignity and personal achievement mm-hmm. that one is really responsible because it really reduces choices. a person just to give them a handout right. and to make them dependent right on others without helping equip them yes yeah they're poor because they're objects right subjects of meaning right? they, they, we intru- instrumentalize the poor so we can feel good about ourselves wow. I, sometimes I say that we treat the poor like we treat our pets you know we, we put a bowl of food there uh-huh. and the pet comes every day for his food and we pat the, the dog on the head makes us feel good and we yeah. repeat it again and but I always link in this scenario to what happened to, in the African American community you know when the times of segregation I love to talk with African all African Americans who invariable tell me Ismael I hate the segregation and who wouldn't you know there was an oppressive society against their community and at the same time they long for the times of segregation mm. because in the presence of that oppression they bound bind together and right. they each other and there were two communities that helped them through the sufferings and injustices of segregation it was the family and look at what has happened to the family and the church but there was a moral expectation attached to helping people by the churches you will go to your pastor and the pastor will tell you i'll help you but i want to see you on sunday you better treat that woman right Mm -hmm. You better stay straight and narrow. Right. You know, there was a moral expectation attached to the gift. And that created the yeah. right incentives that created these bonds of community that were destroyed by the welfare state. Because mm-hmm. here comes the government mm-hmm. commissar with a check in the hand. And now suddenly you don't need to listen to your pastor. There's no incentive for life to live the right way because there is reward without commitment. And right. suddenly, then you begin to demand more of that system, you know? And what happens? Who, who we see in the system? We see supposedly white people, so we attach race to class, and then antagonism yeah. comes from that exercise. You mentioned the family. Yeah. As you're pointing near the end of the book to to those things that can give hope in this sense. But you point obviously to the importance of the family. And the fact is that's a subject that can't be avoided when we're talking about these various pathologies, because so much of it can be traced directly to the breakdown of the family. And earlier in our discussion, you mentioned black lives matter. And one of the real sad ironies about black lives matter is that one of their core principles on their front page of their website is that they're committed to the overthrow of this idea of the nuclear family with a mother and a father and together raising children. What a sad irony that the very thing that Black Lives Matter at least purports to care about is something that their own principles will undermine. Absolutely. Black Lives Matter is a Marxist-inspired attempt at transforming our society that utilizes race as a hook. Because today, the reality is that white people feel a sense of guilt. And that guilt is being exploited by people who have ideological intentions that have nothing to do with the gospel. Really have nothing to do with the gospel, but with advancing ideologies. You know, if you study, there were studies, there was a 
studied, I studied the 25 years before the end of slavery and the 25 years after slavery ended and found that 80% of black kids were born into two pine homes, even during slavery. Wow. Even in 1900, E.W. Du Bois did the yeah. same study, found the same. 80% of black kids, even during segregation, were born into two parent homes. It's not until the 1960s, late 60s, mm. that Patrick Moynihan comes with a study that found that for the first time in more than 100 years, we have about 75% of kids being born into two parent homes. Today, 70% of black kids are born outside of two parent homes. It's not getting better for the white community. You know, in the 1900s, it was 1% of white kids were born no. into two pine, outside of the two-parent home structure. Today, it's 30%. So the reality is that as the family goes, wow. so goes the nation. As you say, ironic that those who supposedly are trying to stand for the rights of African-Americans are attacking the very institution that has given meaning to, to what it means to be black in, in America. That's what makes it so ironic to see figures like Angela Davis now being quoted mm. with approval by allegedly conservative Protestant Presbyterians. Right. Anyone who knows anything about Angela Davis's ideology and ideological roots will know that the destruction of the family as a bourgeois capitalist institution lies right at the very heart of her program. It's hard to imagine yes. something more antithetical to a Christian Absolutely. understanding of society than that. I think it is about time that we renew the history of our people. The history of African Americans in America is not the history of what happened to us as we are objects moved by forces outside of our control. The history is of a people who survived and thrived in spite hmm. of what so we have been focused so much in, on what whites supposedly did to us and actually did to us. Yeah. And less of what did we do to survive and thrive in spite of the difficulties? You know, one of the histories that has not been told is the history of so many African-American men after emancipation traveling thousands of miles looking for their loved ones mm. who have been lost, have been lost recently during slavery. Wow. And today we made these babies and we leave them. Mm. Mm. So we go away from them when the history of our people was to go after them, wow. to reconnect with them. So we need to renew black history to make it one about survival and about the beauty of a people who, in spite of their problems, conquered. Mm. The story not of victims, but of conquerors, mm. but victims who pay, mm. at least gives you the illusion of success, because some crumbs from the structures of society may come your way, and some gatekeepers in the, in the community have jobs because of our victimhood. Wow. Well, it's been great having you on the program, Ismail. We want to commend uh, your ministry to uh, listeners, we'll certainly be putting a link to your website on our own website when the podcast goes out. And we're also going to offer, as a premium, a number of copies of your great book, 
that not tragically coloured freedom, personhood and the renewal of black America. If you're interested in thinking about these issues, not satisfied simply by reading a few cliches of warmed over post-colonial theory spouted by people who don't really know what they're talking about, this is the book for you. So we would certainly recommend you uh, go to our website, enter for a chance to win a copy. And if you don't win a copy, please purchase one from Amazon. It's an extremely important book. So thank you very much for being with us, Ismail. Thank you so much. Please uh, visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, for a chance to win a copy of Ismail's book. Remember, we're a listener-supported podcast. If you feel led to make a donation, please do so. And in the meantime, we look forward to being with you next time. How would you like to sing along in this one? Come on now. Guantanamera Guajira, Guantanamera Guantanamera Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... Bob, as strange as it may sound, there may be a few of our listeners who are not actually aware of who Amy Simple McPherson was. Could you give just a brief sketch of of who she was? Maybe you could elaborate on why we're calling her sister, Amy. And what about her death? Do you think it was suicide or accidental? Church institutions in America have been characteristically weak, while charismatic leaders and mass movements have been strong. And I think uh, Amy illustrates that. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. My dad was so extreme that I was once walking into town with a girl from school and she was on the outside of the sidewalk next to the road. My dad drove past and he said, when you're walking with a girl, you always on the outside. If some guy drives through a puddle, you get sprayed. (laughs) But that's that's the service leadership. I still remember, I still remember when I was in high school one day in church with this big, big Southern Baptist church in Houston and, and my, my, and it was me Two other guys in the youth group, my dad and and a, the girl that I was dating at the time, we were just found ourselves standing in a circle kind of talking. And afterwards, my dad pulled me aside. He was very kind. But he said, now, Todd, he said, when you were talking to us, you made eye contact with me and and so and so and so and so. But but you didn't really engage. Um, I think her name was Jana. And um, <laughs> and, you know, and I still remember that uh-huh. conversation of going. Yeah, that sticks. You. Uh huh.